Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The people who built, who made the genetic disc um, <laughs> conceivably are attacking us through their, their incredibly advanced and sophisticated telecommunications that they had 6,000 years ago. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs, raise your trials as one will call, no we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs, raise your trials as one will call, no we don't do dinosaurs. Hey everybody, welcome to the Archaeology Fantasies Podcast. We tackle the hot topics in today's fringe archaeology and alternative history from a critical point of view. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host, Kenneth Fader. This is episode two, where we go over Ken's pseudo-archaeology checklist and use it as we discuss the genetic disc, fact or fiction. Get ready to think critically. Dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs. No we don't do dinosaurs. No we don't do dinosaurs. Welcome everybody back to the next episode of the Archie Fantasies podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I'm here with Ken Fader. There you go. Ah, Hi, everybody. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing today? We are good. We're we're hitting that kind of typical New England ice storm uh, time of year, which is not particularly good, but I I guess we'll survive it. So you guys actually have weather because it's been pleasant here. Yeah, I mean, the deal here is we've had a ton of rain, and the, the atmosphere is a little bit too warm for snow, but what's going on is that we've had a bunch of cold weather, and so the surfaces, ground surfaces, are really cold, so as soon as the rain hits them, freezes instantly. And so you've got a lot of accidents, tractor trailers turning over on highways, because they hit those those icy patches of black ice, and there's just it doesn't make any difference if you've got chains, if you've got studs, if you've got four-wheel drive, you just kind of go sailing off into the sunset. So that's right. been kind of miserable for the last – all today was terrible. We're waiting on that to hit here, but so far we've just had the, the drizzly rain. Yeah. So enough about the weather. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> today I wanted to talk about the genetic disc, and I sent you a bunch of stuff to read. What did you think? Yeah. The, the thing about the genetic disc, I have to admit something to you, Sarah. Before we kind of talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago, I had heard of it. And was it basically was off my radar. So I've been reading up a whole lot of stuff on it. And the thing I really like about this, Sarah, is that it's it's this wonderful example, a wonderful case study of kind of pathological archaeology. And it's it's a it's a really good example. Um, one of the things I do in my classes is I have I, I, I give the kids a checklist. Of these are the kinds of things to look at when you're looking at kind of you know weird archaeology. Is this legit or isn't it legit? And if you can check off more than half of the boxes, you know, 
put your hand on your wallet because somebody's trying to pick your brain. And man, this one, the genetic disc, it's like you, you check every box. And we'll probably talk about that today. The, the, the kinds of general approaches that you see in this, that you see in so many other examples of fake archaeology, of pseudo-archaeology. So in that sense, man, it's, it's a great thing for us to talk about today. Okay, well... Let's give people a little bit of background to what the genetic disc is because not everybody knows about it. And one of the reasons that I wanted to cover it was because it's so new, or at least it's newer than most of the other things we will have a chance to talk about on the show. Um, So it came to my attention by one of my readers of the blog. They sent it to me and was like, what do you think about this? And... um, and I looked it over and I, I just wrote it off. I was, and, I, and I wrote him back and I was like, oh, it's, it's obviously a fake. Right. You know, and I, and I, I did the same thing like you did. It didn't even hit my radar. I'm like, this thing is obviously a fake. Look at it. Right. And then I had like two more people email me about the same artifact. And I was like, so I went and looked at it. Sure. And so what it is, is, you know, since this is basically radio and we're going to describe something that's visual, it's, it looks to be about the size of a dinner plate. Right. Um, it's round like a record. It looks to be maybe a couple few inches thick. Yeah, it's solid at least black. A couple inches, yeah. Yeah, it's solid black, and it to my eye, it looks like it's been molded. It looks like right. it's a poured mold of some sort. Um, but judging from Dr. Vera Hammer's discussion about it that she and I had, apparently it is carved, but it's. It's carved in a way that you can tell that modern tools have been used on it. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is what gives it that perfect polished look. Right, right, right. Um, and apparently there were also some other artifacts that were found, found in quotes, in association with the disc itself. Right. Um, and all of those are dubious as well. Right. Um, and they're I mean, all the thing made... is too, right? There's a big hole in the middle of it, right? It almost looks yeah, like it's like a record. record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it it looks like a bi disc. It looks like a really, really thick bi disc. Um, which I've, I've there's another name for those that runs around in the conspiracy theorist circles, but I can't remember it right off the top of my head. Right. So what did what did you think when you first looked at it? I mean, <laughs> you know, I looked. At, one of the things that gets me about these things, Sarah, is that is that it doesn't make any difference how goofy these things look, uh, how amateurishly done they are, is that people just kind of glom onto them. Um, I mean, you see this again and again, where it, it looks like a, you know, like a third grader carved some of these images. It oh, doesn't yeah, look, yeah, yeah, yeah. It it's, it's like the, the Michigan relics and a number of other archaeological fakes where you just look at it and you go, seriously? This is supposed to be some spectacular piece of technology? It looks kind of childish. So that was that was my first impression. But then I went and actually read some of these websites. And then I got even more excited about this because, again, there are just, you know, you can just go down a checklist of things to look for when you're looking at archaeological fakes. And, man, you just keep on checking these boxes. It's like these guys read my book and said, well, we got to <laughs> got to do what Fader says we shouldn't do to, to pull off a fake. Um, it was just, it's, it's again and again and again. Um, if you'd like, I'll go down my list and then I have a couple of questions to ask you actually, cause you, cause you actually contacted Vera Hammer, right? Yeah. And I actually had some contact, um, with the guy who was claiming to be the one who's, uh, t- 
touting them as actual artifacts. He he contacted me on Facebook, but that didn't go anywhere. But yeah, go ahead, tell go through your checklist first, and then we'll we'll talk about sure. my conversation with Dr. Yeah. Hammer. So one of the things you got to be really careful about, and this is this is really a, a kind of a, a dead giveaway. It's diagnostic, is that a lot of these fake archaeological artifacts or bizarre stories, they they very often will contact legitimate scientists in order to get some sort of feedback or some sort of confirmation. And the thing is, you have to read very carefully exactly what these scientists have said. Now, Sarah, I bet you you and, and me are the same. Our mothers raised us right. And when somebody <laughs> approaches us with some bizarre thing, we're, we're polite. We don't necessarily say, oh, you know what, you're a moron. Don't ever email me again. We respond with things like, well, wow, that's interesting. Good luck researching this. And that, that kind of stuff gets glommed onto by these people as somehow affirmation or verification. If you look at, now, Vera Hammer is a real deal scientist. And right. if you look at the, the, the exact quote, and I've got here, I'll pull, I'll pull up a quote from one of the websites that says, hey, listen, she's involved in this. And all it says is, Dr. Vera M.F. Hammer, expert for precious stones and minerals, analyzed the object. That's the entire quote. Well, yeah. And th but that's viewed as, well, that's affirmation. See, she looked at it. Well, what does that mean? She looked at it. Does that mean she said, oh, my God, this is 6,000 years old. This has inexplicable information. She didn't say that. All, all we get from that is, well, she looked at it. And I'm sure that rather than her, you know, attacking these people and saying, oh, what are you, crazy? She was she responded in a polite way, saying, hey, listen, I, I'll analyze the object, but that's the extent of it. And that's 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 typical kind of stuff. Um, years ago, I interviewed um, I reviewed a book called Forbidden Archaeology, oh, which yeah. is kind of a, this uh, it's kind of Hindu creationism. And I I absolutely tore the book apart, but I was polite in saying things like, well, it's it's well written. And it was it was I think one of the authors, in fact, was a journalist. So it was well written. And. A couple of years after I wrote the review, somebody contacted me saying, well, gee, Fader, why did you so positively review Forbidden Archaeology? And I said, what are you talking about? Well, because somebody pulled that one polite quote out of the review and they used that to advertise the book, ignoring all the other stuff that I said. Well, well that's it's really... It's really one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't situations. If you're not nice and you're, you're even remotely rude about it, they'll just jump all over you for being one of those academics. And if you are nice about it, you got to be really careful. And even then you really can't be careful enough because they'll just cherry pick what you have to say oh, until absolutely. it means whatever they want it to mean. Absolutely. I mean, that's, so, that's, yeah. that actually is, it's kind of thematic that when um, professionals, archaeologists and geologists and astronomers will be sent books, I get sent books that are, that are uh, privately published, right? They're not published by any large, large uh, publication house. And I will write back a nice note saying, thank you very much for your, your book. I'm sure it will be very interesting. And then that turns up as professional archaeologist Ken Fader has looked at this book and he thinks we're on the right track. And it's like, right. whoa, wait a minute. That's now, when not you what I said. When you contacted Vera Hammer, what did she what did she tell you about her involvement now she's a real deal uh, not an archaeologist what is she a geologist uh yes um no 
She is a mineralogist. Okay. Uh, she and I had a very interesting interaction. Um, I tried to contact her before I published the blog, and I wasn't able to get to her. Right. Uh, and I just figured she didn't want to respond because I was asking directly about the disc, and I don't blame her for being like, no, not dealing with it. Um, right. So I just kind of figured that she had blown me off because she thought I was one of the crazy crackpots. Um, right. So after I published the blog, apparently she and I have a mutual acquaintance through Twitter, and that person passed my post on to her, and she read it that way. And she was not very happy about being in the blog, about being mentioned in the blog post. In the original right. post, I just mentioned who she was, and I said, and, and I said, and she is a geologist, and as a geologist, she is not qualified to comment on the um, cultural Right. implications of an artifact. I never implied that she had, even though there are websites out there that do. And I was trying to get people to realize that geologists are not archaeologists. And so they can't really comment on the cultural value of an object, which is exactly. what those were the words that were being put into her mouth. And apparently it came off wrong. Um, so she and I had an exchange over email and it was actually very civil. Sure. And I said, you know, I know you've had contact with this artifact. I know what's being said on the internet. Why don't you give me your take on it and I will publish it word for word on my blog. Brilliant. Right. So she did. And I'm really glad that she did that because I mean, I learned, I learned a couple things about it. I'm not a geologist, so I didn't know there was a difference between these two different uh, schist and chert. Cause I thought it looked churty and she said it was schist. And I was like, oh. I don't even know what that is. So right. we will go with what you say. But once I got her talking about it, she was part of a team that looked at it, and uh, uh -huh. this guy named Klaus Donna brought it in. Let's see. She she says she was asked in the in two thousand and one by Klaus Donna to who curated an ex in a, an exhibit called Unsolved Mysteries, uh, in Vienna. Of course. And they did an XRD analysis of the objects that he was exhibiting, and um, I linked to that. Basically, it was a um. They analyzed the mineral makeup of the the artifacts to see if it was a. I he, I think he thought that they could date the objects, but as far right. as my understanding that it's impossible to date stone itself. Okay. Like beyond um, you know it's several million years old you know oh yeah it's, right. it's a can, rock right you can date stone but that doesn't date to when somebody made something out of that stone yeah, we've got exactly. we have basalt artifacts here in the farmington valley and the basalt is a hundred between 100 and 200 million years old right now, i can make a basalt artifact today if you dated it you could find out through potassium argon dating that it's well that's 100 million years old but what but the artifact itself the thing i made is actually 10 minutes old so yeah you can date the rock but that doesn't do you any good right and i and i I think Donna, Mr. Donna was trying to, I think what he wanted was something that he could twist into saying, because I know that he does say that the, the, the stone that the artifacts are made out of is harder than diamond. And she was like, I don't even understand why that's important because it's completely stupid and blah, right. blah, blah, blah. I mean, she was very nice about it, but I'm being, I'm the one being unnice about it. Right. Uh, but she did say that the genetic disc, this is, this is her entire analysis of it. She says, our comment about the disc was that it consisted of feldspar, quartz, and mica. That was all she said about it. Alert the media. Right. And so 
some of the herself and some of the other people on the team that did the analysis told Donna and the rest of his people that these were very that these were probably very likely to be fakes and that you could go down into the town and buy them. <laughs> you could buy replicas of these in the town. Shades of they, the Ica stones. Right, because they were just basically mass produced by mm -hmm. the, the locals there. And obviously that's not what Mr. Donna wanted to hear. Right. Um, so he went on to create the story that the rock is harder than diamond, so there's no tool on earth that could possibly carve it. And, you know, except for the fact that we cut diamond all the time. And I forget what his other claims were exactly, but he just really hyped this up and then would throw in little lines about how Dr. Vera Hammer said this, therefore the objects are real. Right. And when in reality, I mean, they're not. And right. she and that, was very, very blunt about it. Right. Well, that, that's typical. That's exactly what we're talking about. That somebody is given an artifact, given a book, given it a website, and they they comment their comments are innocuous and not particularly um, uh, meaningful in terms of what other claims are being made. And yet the mere fact that they commented on this object at all is used as, you see, right. here's an important person with training who has thought enough about this that she's actually looked at it and commented on it and then ignoring, of course, what she said, yeah. uh, which is kind of crazy. I also saw in one of the websites, and this is another name, I don't recognize the name, but it's the, the quote is, University Professor Dr. Rudolf Distelberger, internationally recognized expert for precious stones and director of the Schatzkammer in Vienna, said that the disc has a very complex content. Now, what does that even mean? Does that mean anything? Is that somehow supporting their hypothesis that this is a and thousands of years old and that it and it, it it conveys some detailed biological or genetic information that people could not have had back then? Well, it does nothing of the kind. But they've got a the guy's got a he's he's a professor. He's a doctor. He's from Vienna. He's internationally renowned. Just the mere fact that his name is included in these discussions on the internet gives this thing the patina of right. validity when in fact nothing this man has said reflects on any of the claims being made but the right. mere fact and that his name is there they think it's 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 like cult archaeology like we talked about last time it's like merely using somebody who's got a phd and is a university professor no matter what he really said that that gives us an, uh, uh, some support when it, in fact, it doesn't. Right. Because, I mean, even if you take what he said at face value, all he's commenting on is the makeup of the stone itself. He's not commenting go. on the actual artifact. He's commenting on the material the artifact is made out of. Right. And just because it has a complex matrix doesn't mean that it's not just a common rock. It means I mean, it has a complex matrix. And that's right. It, I mean, I mean, church is complex but that doesn't make it so special that we never see it and humans couldn't possibly work it because the entire uh all of the uh artifacts from prehistory are pretty much made out of chert yeah chert's a cryptocrystalline material and if you know how to break chert man you can make sharp edges and you can make it into just about anything right. so this nonsense that that well no it's so hard it, it, it well it's just that it just it just doesn't make any sense but that's another thing. Another checkbox is make definitive statements. You know, make absolutely definitive statements that the average person reading it who doesn't know church, 
doesn't know what shirt is, just knows, well, it's some kind of rock. And if somebody says definitively, you can't break this with normal, even with modern tools, uh, people will take that at face value and say, oh, okay, then it must be something really special or really odd. Profiles in CRM, a weekly podcast, asks CRM professionals eight simple questions. The first questions establish education, location, and experience. The last questions are a reflection of that experience, and the answers will surprise you. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash profiles. On that page, you can also request to be interviewed for the show. It only takes 20 minutes, and you don't need any special equipment. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah, I... I don't like that whole false authority. I, I just dealt with that. I just finished writing a, a blog post that's going to go up uh, on that Unearthed America show, which I can't wait to rant about. But right. that's one of his shticks is he just states things. He doesn't give you a reason why. He doesn't back it up with anything. He just says A is B, therefore C. And right. you have no – if you're just watching the show and you're not a even – halfway familiar with what he's talking about you just have to take him at face value which right. means you're just accepting whatever comes out of his mouth well yeah that means if you don't know what you're talking about at least sound confident and right. most people will go along with you no and that's true i mean that that's a fault in our brains that is true I, and mm -hmm. you know t the television shows and people like this klaus donna guy they really take advantage of that sure so so what yeah. else is on your checklist? All right. So my next, my next list is, is so in the, in the first one was cite experts, even though those experts have not said anything that supports your theory, cite them as being interested, as being polite, and it makes right. it sound like they're, they're there with you. Right. The, other ex, the other kind of experts to cite are people whose credentials you greatly exaggerate or whose right. credentials really don't have anything to do with what you're what, what, what the, the study you're, you're engaged in. But it makes it sound like, well, this guy has a degree. This guy is a doctor. Therefore, he must be um, a, a reliable source. One of the I don't know if you've, you've caught this guy, but in a couple of the websites, they cite an expert whose name is Dr. Algund Einboom. Oh, and, yeah. And he's, a do he's presented as a doctor. And after all, we're talking about a disc that supposedly has all this detailed biological and genetic information. So, of course, a person to, to cite would be a medical doctor. Right. I did a little research on this guy. First of all, and again, this is I'm not saying this in a way that I hope offends anybody, but Dr. Einboom is not a an MD. He's a DDS. The guy's a dentist. Now, if he if if on the, the genetic disc there was a lot of information about bicuspids and molars, okay, now he can be the expert. But he's not a medical doctor. The guy is a dentist. Now, the other thing that's interesting about Einboom is that his name shows up in a number of other places um, related to extreme claims made about archaeology. I first find Einboom writing an article for Omni Magazine, which was, I think it was a spinoff of like Penthouse back in the 1980s. And he wrote an article in 82 in which he claimed that a, a little wooden artifact in Egypt called the Saqqara bird, which is, it looks like a little kind of stylized bird made out of wood. His argument was 
that actually was a small model for a full-sized glider that ancient Egyptians used to fly around Egypt. So that's where ancient aliens got that then is from him. Well, the, the thing is, Einboom actually was on the first season of Ancient Aliens. Yep. He was interviewed on the show. So the, the thing is, this guy is not just some random doctor they approached with this artifact who gave an unbiased, objective, scientific opinion. Number one, he's a dentist. So as far as I'm concerned, that's great if I have a cavity, but not the guy to go to when you're looking for geological or archaeological expertise. But beyond that, he's not just some random guy. He's a guy fully ensconced in the alternative archaeology universe. Mm -hmm. So he is not the objective observer who you would go to with any artifact to get an unbiased scientific interpretation of what the hell it is that we're looking at. And that's, that's a typical kind of thing that's done again and again and again, that these guys all cite one another. So if you look yes. at F fingerprints of the gods of the, the book by, um, by Graham Hancock, who are the people he cites? Well, he cites people who are similarly fringe thinkers and so it's this, this big daisy chain of each one um, reaffirming what the other one says, but never getting out of that universe and finding out, well, how about what really trained scientists in these fields? What do they say? What do they think about these things? And that's typical of this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And one of the first things I do when I start, rec when I start researching one of these articles or something, I, I go to the fringe sites and I see what they're saying and I see who they're claiming to be their experts and I look right. those people up and that is that's like the first thing you should always do because uh, that's how you're going to be able to pick like the actual authorities from people who are being hyped because right. like with this guy he's got a lineage of doing fringe stuff and Absolutely. and and pseudo-archaeology and so that right there should be your first red flag that whatever this guy is going to say probably needs to be taken with a grain of salt absolutely for sure now, now, that's great. Continuing on my checklist, we, I've saw in a couple of websites estimates for the age of this disc. Did you see those? Yeah, and they're like outrageous. The ones that I saw all hovered around 6,000 years. Yeah, uh, I have no idea. I still cannot figure out how they managed to get that date. See, um, that's, that's absolutely, Sarah. That, you know, I was thinking about that, the date they give. And... If I were to come to you and say, hey, Sarah, I'm digging the site in northwestern Connecticut, and it's like 11,000 years old, what's the, what's the question? What's one of the first questions you're going to ask me? Well, first off, I think it was really cool. But then I'd be like, what are you finding? Right. And, and that – What's that? Where's that date come from? And right. then if I told you, well, I have fluted points, so I have the style is right, and I have – I have organic samples. I have charcoal that I sent off to a radiocarbon lab that came back with radiocarbon dates that you know cluster around that eleven thousand year range. You'd be pretty confident. But if I said I got an eleven thousand year old site, and you said, "All right, Kenny, how did you date it?" And if I said to you, "I don't know, it just feels like it's that old," I have a rock. <laughs> you know, just a rock. It just, it's in. It's my intuition says it's that. I've looked and looked and looked, and while they, they seem to be consistent that they say it's 6,000 years old, not one of the sites explains where did that number come from. And that's, well, I think that's what the, the whole thing with taking it to um, Dr. Hammer and her group was, was to try to find a way to claim the date was correct. 
because they try to attach it to this culture. Right. And even if they attach it to the culture, it's still too old. Oh yeah, it, the, the, the that's so so on this checkbox. It's if you look at a if if you, you read a claim on a website or see a, a see something on a cable a cable show about archaeology, and they just give you this is how old it is. Trust us, that's pretty typical. Right. In other words, without any confirming evidence for well, why do you think it's that old? What evidence do you have? What technique techniques did you use to date that site? Are we are we looking at style? Are we looking at radiocarbon or thermoluminescence or potassium argon dating or any one of an, a host of other techniques? Which technique did you use? And if they don't tell you, or if when you ask, they just say, "Well, it just looks old." You know, you're dealing with fake archaeology because archaeologists yeah. don't work that way. We do not say. We think it's yeah. We think it could be a million years old. Uh, how do you know that? Well, it just I just have that feeling. We don't go with feeling or intuition. We go with actually you know hard science data. But then you brought up something which is again another one of the check boxes. A lot of times these artifacts they try to associate them with a particular culture or cult cultural group. And in this case, it's what the the Muisca um, of South America. Yeah. Which is a legitimate, archaeologists have defined that culture, and there's a particular artifact style to it. But that's where, and again, in, in the case of genuine archaeology, if I told, if I'm, if I'm putting on, on my website, my campus website, that we've got a site, and it's, we think it's like late archaic, or we think it's woodland, or we believe it's, it's you know, Paleo-Indian. I'm giving you, it, there's a time involved there, and there's a certain cultural um, background or or you know milieu that that is implied by use of those terms and then right. i have to i have to define what those terms mean and i have to justify why do you say it's that period why do you say it's that culture um why do i say well this looks mohegan but this looks pequot the deal is when they say it's we got on on what they never in any of these websites do they explain exactly well on what basis do you say that and they ignore the fact that the, the typical Muisca stuff that I've seen is about 1,000 years old. It's not 6,000 years old. So you, all these, these pieces of the puzzle are absolutely not fitting together. And that's pretty typical of this stuff. Well, and it doesn't – if you do go and look up the Muisca people – I mean this is the other thing that irritates me. The Muisca people are still around. They're a living right. oh, tribe. Yes. Right. And their stuff is – I mean even their, their prehistoric stuff is all over the place. So it's you can compare stylistically the the disc and its associated uh, pieces with actual artifacts and artwork from the Wisca people, and it doesn't even begin to look like anything yes. that they would have done. Yeah, I mean, even from a, a pretty subjective kind of eyeballing it, and that's not how we want to do this, but. If somebody handed me that disc and handed me a, a bunch of pieces of Muisca art, I would not immediately say, wow, that disc looks a lot like this stuff. I wouldn't put them in the same category at all. Right. And I think that, that you know, again, that's, that's another one of these examples of well, they really don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're doing. But, but hey, it's from South America. They are claiming it's from an area where Muisca people today live. So right. they're trying to make that connection. Right. And like the material itself that it's made out of, it's, I mean, it, it doesn't take that, it's not that hard to look up the Muisca people. And that's not even a material that they would have used to create right. their artwork with anyway. Right. So yeah. it's just, it's too many, too many red flags. Right. Exactly. 
Um, oh, here's this is one of my my absolute favorites, and this is this is an important rule for everybody who's interested in pseudoarchaeology. Um, a lot of times in pseudoarchaeology, they will show the 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 person who purve- who is purveying this alternative view of the of antiquity. They will show you a work of art, say a cave painting, or a design on a pot, or a, a carved sarcophagus lid and palenque. The uh, Pakal's sarcophagus lid from the Maya site of Palenque is a great example of this. Mm-hmm. And essentially what they will do is they will prompt you as to what you should be seeing in yes. the art that is often very um, uh, not realistic at all. It, it's very kind of surreal. And they, they, but they prompt you. And that is typically what happens. Because ultimately... In so many of these cases, if you weren't prompted to see, well, doesn't that look like an astronaut? Doesn't right. that look like a sperm cell? Doesn't that right. look like an ovum? Without that prompting, you wouldn't see that. Exactly. Um, you know, the, with the, uh, the the example is the Palenque sarcophagus, which uh, maybe we'll talk about a lot more um, in another podcast. But that's the one that the very famous now. It's iconic. Yeah. It's a. Uh, the lid of a sarcophagus found at the base of a Maya pyramid at the site of Palenque. The ruler's name is Pakal. And it's this beautiful work of, of carving. I guess it's a bas-relief. And Von Donneken and people before him and people since have said, doesn't that look like an astronaut in a spaceship? Right. And to be honest with you, it's very difficult for me at this point to sort of erase that from my brain and say does that look anything like that? But so what I, what I do in classes, I do a little, a little um, experiment in class. I pick another image entirely, not a well-known one, not one that the students in my class have ever seen before, but of an artifact that Eric Von Donneken says, look, this is something amazing. And then he tells people in the caption of the photograph, what it is they're looking at. And I've, I've done this for a few years, Sarah, and I've never had a student who without prompting, to to independently come up with the same thing that Van Donneken says it is. Yeah. Van Donneken, in fact, the, the image I'm, that I use in class all the time, Van Donneken says it is clearly evidence that extraterrestrials landed on Earth and then did chest x-rays of the natives because the image shows ribs. Because, other, you know, simple uh, primitive people would not know that human beings had ribs without a chest x-ray. Right. Right. So the thing is, though, you show them to students and unprompted, they say, well, I don't know, it looks like a guy in armor or something. But then if I then say to another group of students, look at this image, doesn't it look like a chest X-ray? You know, like three quarters of them say, yeah, you know, now that you mention it, it does. Well, that's that's typically what happens in these cases. When, when I looked at that disc, I tried not to read what I was supposed to be seeing. Right. And I just saw, okay, there is what appears to be a woman with like her vagina and there does appear to be a guy and there's his penis. But all the other stuff seemed so vague. And then only later reading it, I said, oh my God, they're saying those are sperm cells? They're saying that's an egg cell? And either I have a very limited imagination or I don't see any of the things that they're saying should be there. And that, that's pretty typical. And, you know, we are all very, very, uh, our brains are pattern-seeking machines. And we're very suggestible. If somebody says, you look up at a cloud, and somebody says, doesn't that look like a pirate ship? 
well, now that you think about it and now that you mention it, okay, yeah, it does. But without somebody telling you, look at that, doesn't it look like a pirate ship? You probably wouldn't see the pirate ship. And that's so it, that, that's a general rule here is if you if you open any of these books, hide the caption. Do not read what the guy says he thinks it is. Look at it and see what you come up with, kind of like an inkblot test. And then look at the caption. And I bet you more times, more often than not, until somebody tells you what you're supposed to see, you won't see it because it's really not there. It's entirely in the imagination of the person writing the caption. Exactly. Those aren't all your checkpoints, are they? No, I got. I have more. Okay, <laughs> I have more. Um, one of the, th- this is something that bothers the hell out of me, and it's it's a very typical kind of ruse used by these folks, and that is, you know, you and I both have looked at this thing and said, you know what? I don't know what the hell the thing is, but it certainly doesn't look legit. It looks like it's a fake. It looks like it's a it's a it's some kind of a forgery. Probably very recent because we have evidence that that uh, modern tools were used. And then the response, and I, I'm sure you've heard this response, but wow, no forger would go to all that work to do that. Of course they would. just kind of walk away. Well, here's a quote from one of the websites. Quote, but why should a forger forge something that does not fit into any scheme we are familiar with? Isn't that that's, bizarre? That's the I whole mean, point. I know. You know how is that? How is that? But that. But this is typical. That somehow these guys think they. So let's let's say that the people interpreting these artifacts are not the responsible parties. They are not the forgers. They are just people who have been kind of sucked into this belief system, and so they're interpreting this this object, this artifact, as something completely outrageous. Well, the deal is then what they they believe that they can kind of do the psychology of a forger. And they think they know what what a forger would be intending. And so they'll say, well, a forger wouldn't go to a lot of work. A forger wouldn't make a whole bunch of them. And a forger wouldn't make something that's so extraordinary that it would, you know, it would really get people's attention, which seems to be exactly the opposite of what a good forger would do. I mean, certainly there are forgers who want to make objects that are such dead on accurate replications of genuine stuff. So they can sell it as the real thing, like like painting a uh, you know coming up with a painting and saying this is a da Vinci. It's it's an unknown work by Leonardo da Vinci, and have that forger would make something that was so accurate, such an accurate replica that it would you know somebody would buy it, you know, uh, spend a lot of money on it. But there's the other side of forgery, which is listen, there obviously is a ready market for bizarre, crazy stuff. And the Ica stones are a great example. I mean, when this guy oh, was carving, yeah. like, people writing on dinosaurs, what was it, the Flintstones? People conducting heart transplants ostensibly thousands of years ago. And, well, the forger behind those has come out and confessed, yep, I did it. I've got a workshop here. I have workers under me. We work these, we punch these things out. Tourists love them. And so... It certainly would not be a legitimate argument that, yes, but those are such weird images, so outside of the norm, no forger would do that. That is just that is categorically false, but it's a typical thing um, uh, referenced by these folks trying to support the authenticity of what clearly is a forged object, just by, by, by giving us these arguments that really intrinsically don't make any sense, 
But again, they sound definitive, like they've done a study of forgery, and this forge if this were a forgery, it would go against everything we know about forgeries. But it's just well, and they, they make it sound like yeah, they make it sound like they've done all this research into whatever it is. Like, um just for example, um the Newberry tablet, which is in episode three of uh Unearthed America, and I okay. just got done reviewing it. Uh-huh. It's the big spiel, the big deal about it is that um, it's written in Myonian linear script A, which apparently the the time between the discovery of the tablet and the discovery of the Myonian culture was like there was a five year gap, okay. and the tablet came first. Therefore, there's no way that the tablet could possibly be a right. forgery. Because nobody knew what the Myonian language was mm -hmm. until five years after the tablet was discovered. Therefore, right. it must be real. And it's like, you can't come up with any other way to explain <laughs> how that could possibly have happened. And that still is a forgery. Because it's not even the script that you're claiming it is to begin with. Right, it's right. gibberish. So it's still basically a fake <laughs> and it's just but you're such an expert in myonian linear a that you can spot it dead on and pronounce it to be authentic by staring at it for 20 minutes you know oh right yeah, yeah, yeah. well it's there you know there's no limit to the twists and turns that people use in order to force something to fit uh, you know, a preconceived notion. And although this, I don't think, applies in the case, case of the genetic disc, but what's really funny is, is a lot of these these um, these uh, inscriptions that are claimed to be, in North America, that are claimed to be either it's Hebrew or it's it's Agam, this Celtic script, or it's runic. Um, the funny thing about that is that when when an inscription is found, if it's if there are errors in it, if there are, if epigraphers, if people who study these scripts say, well, no, this thing is, is a fake because there are some serious errors in the spelling, in the syntax, in right. the, the way the, well, what the supporters of this very often will say, the inaccuracies and the errors are exactly the kind of proof used for, by them to show that it's legit because their argument is, well, some guy wandering around in New Mexico 2,000 years ago, he probably didn't know Hebrew all that well. So if it were perfect, then we should be suspicious. So it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. If the inscription exactly. is perfect, is it, see, that they couldn't have done that, that perfectly if it was a forgery. But if it's imperfect, if there are mistakes, it's like, well, that's what you'd expect 2,000 years ago from some guy who was barely literate wandering around in New Mexico or in New England or in Michigan or wherever. Still recording on paper in the field? Hate having to process hundreds of site records when you get back to the office and would rather go straight to report writing and research? DigTech has the answer. Hi, I'm Chris Webster, founder of DigTech LLC, a disabled veteran-owned CRM firm and archaeological technology research and development firm. At DigTech, we're creating applications for smartphones and tablets that will increase efficiency in the field and will keep archaeologists doing what they love, archaeology, and will reduce the amount of busy work in the office. 
Some of what we do involves enhancing existing third-party applications that are already on the app stores. Use our consultation form on the website at www.digtech-llc.com forward slash tablet and we'll help you figure out what digital solution is best for you. The cost of going digital is a lot less than you think and once you do it, you'll wonder why you ever recorded on paper to begin with. Contact Chris over at DigTech, the parent company of the Archaeology Podcast Network today and let DigTech help you save paper, save time, save resources and go digital. Now back to the show. You do science, one of the, the key issues in a scientific hypothesis is that it's, it's got to be falsifiable. You have to be able to say, listen, this is something that with the right kind of data, I can prove that it's not true. But if you're saying that this disk or this inscription is legit, and no matter what you find out about it, I'm going to reject that as being disconfirmation of a hypothesis, then that's great. But you're not doing science. For no. science, we have to set up in advance. Listen, if this, if we find this, this, and this, but not this, this, and this, we have to reject that hypothesis. And but that's, if whatever you find, is, oh yeah, that's fine. Well, then you're not doing science. No, and that's there's there's two things happening there. There, that's the the misunderstanding of what a hypothesis is and how science works through a hypothesis. And I, I'm sorry, I blame our school system for that. Oh, um, yeah. And the other thing that's happening is they're moving the goalpost. And that's a very common denier tactic is to, okay, well, you prove this wrong, but can you prove this wrong? Okay, well, you prove that wrong, but now can you prove this wrong? You right. know, they just, they keep moving the goalposts. So you can't ever, you can't ever satisfy whatever they need you to satisfy right. for them to believe you, you know, and it gets really aggravating <laughs> because you're like, but I just proved three different things to you and there's whatever you're asking for now is just ridiculous. And you know, the, the thing that's even more bothersome, Sarah, is that sometimes then the goalposts are just ignored entirely. So you have something like, for example, um, in, in, uh, I hope, I hope a lot of the listeners are familiar with the Nazca lines, these spectacular geoglyphs yeah. in South America. And there was an, an instance in which in one of Von Donnegan's books, he's got what appears to be an aerial photograph of one of the Nazca geoglyphs. And what he says in the caption is, doesn't this look like the parking bay at a modern airport? And there are these, these, these oblong sections where maybe you could park an airplane. And it kind of does, if you take an aerial view of an airport, this looked kind of like that. Now, when you actually go down on the ground, First of all, the thing is is only like 20 feet across, so there's no way it could be an airport. And number two, that the, this particular part of this geoglyph was in the leg of a giant condor that had been etched into the desert. Now, when Von Donneken, in a, a television documentary back in the 80s, when he was confronted with this and said, so clearly your hypothesis here is, is crazy because... And he actually admitted on camera, oh, yes, 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 um, this is wrong. This was a mistake that somebody made, and uh, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's not an airport. So, okay, we've, we, we've, we've told him, we've, we've deflected the kick from the goalposts, right? So, no, you can't, you don't get that. But you know what? In subsequent editions of the book, they never changed it. He's notorious for that, though. He is notorious for, and uh, Hancock does the same thing. If you... Point it out to them face to face, they will backtrack, but they uh -huh. won't change it and they'll continue like and willfully continue to leave it in their manuscripts and push it forward in future books and future editions. Uh, 
Von Daniken's been called out on that number of times. Uh -huh, sure. Uh, and Hancock got called out on, on public television. Okay. So, you know, yeah. they're both notorious for doing that. Yes, yes. So it's like, you're right, they move the goalposts, but then no matter where the goalposts are, ultimately they just kind of ignore the goalposts. Yeah. And say, eh, whatever, we're not worried about goalposts. They're not, they're just throwing them out there to aggravate whoever it is that's saying they're wrong. Right. Or trying to know, prove that they're wrong. Yeah. And that's the last check checkbox here, because we're, we were, we're, we're, we've been going on a little long on this, is... <laughs> It, but no, but you know what it is? I bring up Von Donneken. Von Donneken is the champ at this. Um, Graham Hancock is really good at this. And in a bunch of the websites the, on, on this, the disc, they're really good at this, which is when you read it carefully, there are very few absolute affirmative statements. There are a lot of, well, uh, maybe, could be, possibly, imagine and when you look at it, you go, wait a minute. They're not saying outright the way you if you if you publish an article in an archaeology journal, you have to say, this is what I've concluded about this site. Now you can have stuff you're not sure about, that's fine. But you can right. say, this is how old the site is, this is a stratigraphic context, these are these are the raw materials used to produce the artifacts. So you have to be able to actually say something affirmative about the site and about the artifacts you've recovered at the site. But these guys, it's they're really clever at couching everything in these hypotheticals. Well, maybe, what if this world's legit? Oh, maybe this could have actually been found. And when you get done, it's you have a whole lot of nothing, right? Yeah. There's there's not there's no actual evidence. It's all a bunch of, well, maybe, coulda, shoulda, possibly. Vodonikin is a champ at that. And you, you, you read the book the first time, you go, oh my God, these crazy things he's saying. And you go back, you realize, well, and, and he'll say this as well. I'm merely bringing up some possible ideas. But you know, could, could be, maybe, is not definite, is. It's, you know, could be, maybe. And it's, you know, if pigs could fly, well, maybe they could. But now we need to talk about science and what evidence do you have that the pigs are actually flying? Because then, you know, we have to all go out with umbrellas if there are flying pigs because uh, we don't <laughs> want to be pelted by all that stuff coming out of the back end of pigs. Well, you know, but they do that. They they do the whole, um, you know, couching it in these, ab these abstract terms. But then in the next sentence, they will continue on and they will actually change their language so that it's no longer a possibility. It's a definite fact. Yeah. And then, and then when you call them on it, they say, well, everything that followed after that first sentence was uh, of course hypothetical because it all depended on the first sentence being true. And they certainly don't prove that. Um, they're, they're masters at backpedaling. I'll give them well, that. Well, they, and of course they rely on people kind of ignoring the, the, well, if this is true, then, and then they just read the next 10 pages, which in which everything is definitive. And then you forget that we have, but it all depends on that first supposition being upheld and there's no evidence provided for that. Right. And it just, in general, if you've ever had even like a high school logic course, it just tears the argument <laughs> right, apart. Exactly. Now for anybody listening to us and say, well, well come on guys. Well, how do you know the genetic disc is, is a fake or fraud? Here's the bottom line is that, and this is, this is the importance of peer reviewed publications is that at, at this point, nobody's done this. Uh, in, in science, science is different from a court where you're, you're innocent until proven guilty. A claim about an archaeological artifact is not considered true until somebody disproves it. 
That's not the way science works. The, the, the burden of proof is on people saying, we've got this incredible artifact. And now that burden of proof in, will, will involve whoever is claiming this to actually write a paper, providing all the data behind the disk, including where did it come from? Where was it excavated? What's the stratigraphic context? What's, how can we date this thing? What's the analysis of the artifact itself? And having that peer reviewed and, 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 published in a journal where people like Sarah and I can actually read all the details that you're not going to get in a one-page website so that we can come to some definitive conclusion. But without that, we start, we always start by thinking, all right, this thing ain't, this thing ain't, ain't kosher. This is not real proof to us that it is. But they're certainly not doing that because all they're doing is, is kind of mouthing off on a website. That's not the way archaeology works. It's not the way science works. We don't hold press conferences. We don't you know, make claims on websites. What we do is we do the analysis, we write it up, we publish it, and, and anybody can read those articles and see exactly how we reach the conclusions that, we, that we've actually reached. And Sarah, you brought this up in a previous podcast that, you know, that can take a long time. That's oh, yeah. not something you do overnight. That's something that takes, it can take years, but because what goes in print that's the permanent record. We want it to be as 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 le- we want to make that as legitimate as we possibly can. We want to be as certain as we possibly can be before we commit something to print. And we're well, yeah, because it's, it's your that. yeah, it's your it's your professional reputation you're throwing out on the line there. I mean, you don't well, you don't want to look like an idiot. So you got to make sure all your I's are dotted and all your T's are crossed. I mean, people are scientists in general and archaeologists especially don't just throw crap out there because. It is way too easy to look like an idiot. So it's it's just better to make sure that you've got all your ducks in a row before you put something out there because as nice as the field can be, you know, you you don't want to be getting a whole bunch of bad reviews. And you I mean, your paper's going to get sent back if it's too bad. They they're just going right. to send it back to you and tell you no, we're not publishing this or redo it. And you don't want to redo it. You know, I mean, that's just the reality of it. You've, right. If you've spent two years getting everything together to publish this paper, you really don't want them sending it back to you and telling you, no, this is crap, redo the whole thing. You know, yeah, absolutely. But on the other hand, you know, that's, that's kind of – it's, it's a filtering mechanism that actually protects us in the end. So that, and you, Sarah, I know, I, know I, will, I will fully admit that you get so involved in a project and you get so much down into that wormhole that when you – that you reach a point where you can't see the error, the logical error. You can't see yourself, the, the missing piece of the puzzle. And that's when they, they send it out to five or six people. And when two or three of them say, wow, this is great, but I still right. have these questions. And you go, crap, that's right. I just completely forgot that, ignored that. I, I was not aware of that citation. Um, oh, my God, I did this math error. So in the end... We personally benefit from other people telling us we've made mistakes, exactly. and the field benefits from that kind of a filtering mechanism. But right. the, the deal is, if these people want to show that the genetic disk is legit, they have to go through that process. Well, and the other otherwise, with, we're never going to know. Right, and another problem with the genetic disk is something we talked about in the first podcast: is the whole thing of context. They just have these artifacts. 
they don't have any record. Of, I mean, they have a story of how these artifacts were found, but they don't have any documentation. These artifacts have never, there's, there's nothing recorded in association with them. We don't know how they were found. We don't know if they were in a pit. We don't know if they were on the, the, the ocean floor. We don't know where these things came from except somewhere in South America. And that right. doesn't tell us anything. And that that provenience cool. is pretty wide a continent. Right, exactly. That that's a whole continent there, or at least the, the lower half of one. So, and that's I think people who legitimately believe that these are artifacts and that we are being dismissive of them. I don't think they understand that it's not that we are. It is that we're dismissing them, but we're dismissing them because they're unprovenienced. They're out of context. They don't mean anything. If we even pretended for a minute that they were real artifacts, they would be completely lost and useless to us because there's absolutely no information we can get from them because we don't know anything about the history of the artifact itself Right. as far as the point where it was lost by whoever created it and then modern people found it. You know, if I've got something sitting in my basement and it's been sitting in my basement for 40 years and I don't and I know that my grandfather pulled it out of a field somewhere that does no one any good. All I've right. got is a neat artifact that sits in my basement now. I mean, it could be like the missing link to some great mystery, but it's gone now. Right. There's, without, it's useless. Without documentation, archaeology is so much about documentation. Photograph everything. Measure right. everything. Because when we, we excavate a site, effectively, we destroy all those contexts and associations. Exactly. So we have to keep record of them. I'll never forget the time I was we were doing an archaeological survey here in Connecticut. And among the things we were looking at were people's private artifact collections. So, And in most cases, people basically had arrowheads in cigar boxes. Why cigar boxes? I don't know. But it's kind of the standard. And we would ask people, all right, where did where did these come from? Most people could say Connecticut around, but but where exactly? Oh, I don't know, because they didn't. Of course, they didn't keep an accurate record of what they found, where they found it, when they found it, in which field they found it, because that wasn't that wasn't what they were doing. And ultimately, that's that removes a lot of the the valuable information. And in one case, um, we do not here in Connecticut. We don't have. Um, volcanic cones. We don't have any obsidian volcanic glass. We have okay. volcanic material. We have igneous rock, but no obsidian. And to to my knowledge, we have never in in Connecticut found any obsidian artifacts traded from far away. Well, I I went through somebody's private collection, and there were there in the middle of that was one exactly one obsidian spear point. Oh, now, no. had I know. Now, had the the person who owned the collection had they not known better, I'd be sitting there thinking, "Well, where did that come from? Was was that actually found in Connecticut? I mean, we, right. the obsidian reached as far east I know as Ohio and maybe even Western Pennsylvania through trade." Well, the person who owned this collection happened to know, oh, yeah, well, he meets with other arrowhead collectors and he saw somebody who had an obsidian point. So he traded him for, you know, a Connecticut basalt point for an obsidian point from who knows where. But without if that guy wasn't around, I'd be sitting there with an artifact saying, just like you said, what, is this like a really important discovery? Is this the first evidence of trade, prehistoric trade between Connecticut and, I don't know, Wyoming or Idaho? Uh, but but again, without documentation, with just well, it was you know a, a story about where it came from. That really is that that's problematic. So yeah, without 
a specific and detailed description of where that genetic disk was found, what it was found with, where it was found in, in the stratigraphic column. Um, uh, we really, it, we just have the, the it's, a, it's a just so story, which is a lot like the crystal skulls and a lot like a, a bunch right. of other stuff where we have no record of where it comes from, where it's where it originated, what its context was. All we have is a guy holding us the artifact going, isn't this cool? Well, it would be a lot cooler if we had some documentation for where it came from. And yeah. my, my initial reaction when handed something like that is there is no context. There is no documentation. Somebody made it in his basement. Right. Well, and, and that's the thing. It's, you're only when you get artifacts that people bring you and and they're they're doing it because they want to show you the cool thing that they found and i and i understand that but you even if it is that groundbreaking artifact that you've been waiting your whole life to find you have to throw it out you can't use it i mean you can write it up and say this collector has this point but you can't associate it with anything so it does no one any good and it's it can be a real tragedy I mean, right. we've I've worked in fields where basically because the entire town goes there to collect, they've basically collected an entire site. And judging right. by the artifacts that they've found, it was a pretty significant site. But it's gone now because right. they've collected everything and then plowed right, exactly. the field a million times. You got a box. You have a box of cool artifacts, but that's about it. Yeah, it's like this does me no good. And the worst part of it is, is since I do CRM. You know, a lot of times we're like, we're out there. I like to feel like I'm the first line of defense. And so you're out there trying to find these sites so that you can basically, you know, if it's if it's a, a significant enough of a site, sometimes they have to reroute around it. So you've right. got all these people who want to protect their land. And it's like, well, one of the best ways to protect your land is to leave the damn artifacts there for me to find them. Because then I can say, there's a site <laughs> here you might want to reroute. There you go. You know, but it's really hard to explain though. that to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's wonderful, though, is when you find these collectors. I I ran into a collector who, Sarah, this guy had, this guy recorded the exact location of where he found everything he oh, ever see, picked up out of the ground. That's and, awesome. I mean, he, you know, he, his records were better than records I've seen kept by professional archaeologists. And it was a young guy who did a lot of, and he never dug. He only collected stuff from plowed fields. And you know, he invited me into his basement where he had what, what looked like it was a museum where every piece he had a record of where everything came from. And I told this guy, you know what, you ought to take like a course in archaeology because you've you've kind of discovered archaeological methodology on your own. That guy today has a PhD in anthropology nice. and runs a CRM firm in Connecticut. Nice. He he was in he was selling um, appliances and he decided, you know what, I like archaeology better. And he's one of the best field archaeologists I know. Well, that's like the man site here in Indiana. It's it's named after the guy who discovered it. He he's not he well he is not around anymore, but he was an untrained amateur enthusiast, and he uh -huh. his records are so meticulous that we can recreate the site from his records, right. and it's like which is unheard of for that time. And you, and you got to think, look, if if a guy collecting arrowheads in Connecticut or a guy collecting artifacts in Indiana. Have, they, they have the presence of mind to keep records of everything. Somebody finding this incredible genetic disc, you know, I think we can expect that they should have done the same thing if, in fact, somebody actually found it. Yeah, you know, that's the that thing. They, if you find something really cool and you just can't keep yourself from picking it up, 
take the most detailed record you possibly could. Take measurements, use your phone, take pictures, get GPS. We're a modern society today. Almost everyone has a phone. Right. Use it to the full extent of its abilities and, you know, keep as meticulous a record as you can. Because I tell you, if an archaeology crew comes out there, it's, it'll be hours before anything happens because of just all of the setup and the beginning measurements and the beginning depths and the pictures and the this and the that that gets set up before anything's even done. Sure. So, I mean, I think that, I think that, that those of uh, people listening to this, this podcast have to understand that ultimately with this genetic disc, I, I just don't see any way in which its validity can be upheld because if there ever was, if there ever were data that we would need in order to ascertain the, the legitimacy of this, it's gone. It's oh, like yeah. you say, it's like now at this point, we just have this one kind of peculiar artifact and people can make up stories about what the images look like or, or how old it is or what culture it's associated with. But they've effectively destroyed this object. If it's if, if there's any if legitimacy to it all, if yeah. it were real, they've they've destroyed it by simply, you know, it's archaeology by press conference, archaeology by blog, archaeology by, well, look what we found. Well, you, you can't you can't. You can't put something back in situ once it's been yanked out. So, right, and, and I mean, you're being a lot nicer than I am because I straight wrote it off, and I still write it off. I mean, there, right. there is nothing to suggest that this artifact is legitimate. But, exactly. But listen, um, I, you know, a bottom line is, yeah. I mean, there's there's nothing here to to to, uh, to suggest to recommend the legitimacy or reality of this artifact. No. Okay, well, I hope we talked the uh, genetic disc to death. Um, yeah, but so it was good because we put it in this really broad context of how you assess fake. No, I think it's great. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. I like your checklist actually. There you go. Everybody should have one. You should have like a little copy on your cell phone so that when you're <laughs> you're if, you know somebody's talking about some weird artifact, you can check things off and go up. Oh, no, he's he's over he's over the minimum over the uh, the maximum number that we can accept for a legitimate artifact. You can just walk away. There's an app to make. We'll, there we'll you go. On that, he's making everything else. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Ranger trials as one will call. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it and possibly learned something new or useful. If you like what you've heard, please head over to the iTunes or wherever you can and rate and review us. Share us wherever you socialize online and send us an email at archiefantasies at gmail.com with your questions, comment, or just angry emails. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow us on iTunes and you can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates at Archifantasies on Twitter and Tumblr. Also, you can look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes with links to things we've discussed in this episode, check out the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. And thanks again for listening. Dinosaurs, raise your trials as one will call. No, we don't do dinosaurs. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.